Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. All right. Last week, we talked about gratitude, the power of gratitude, and I ended up having to squeeze the last part of my message into a few moments. And so I want to pick up where we left off last week and build on that. I feel like the Lord has something for us this morning. And so I want to do a little bit of review. I shared last week, uh, Saturday nights we have a prayer meeting here from, from 8 to 9, and the, uh, not the last night, but the, the, the previous week, uh, we were in prayer in here, and I was meditating on this thought of how Worship or gratitude is the, the end of the last miracle and the beginning of the next one. And I, that thought was rolling around in my mind as we were praying. And then we came up front and Christopher was leading us in prayer and put his hand on me. And I just far, started to feel the, the weight of God. And so I, I ended up laying down on the ground. And uh, when I did that, see, notice how when I said wait, it just got louder there. So it... Uh, I don't want to talk about anything to do with weight after Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm not even going to go there. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. So uh, as we were praying, I I just laid down on the floor because I just felt the presence of God so heavily. And as I did that, I I began to see this picture again and again in my mind. And it it was of us as a people walking and we were eating off the trees of our victory. And we were eating the fruit of our victory. But as we're eating the fruit, and it was just the juice was running down our cheeks, it was good. And uh, as we were doing that, we were taking the seeds and we were spitting them out. But the seeds were coming out as worship or gratitude or praise back to the Lord. And as we praised him for the yesterday's victory, we released the seeds of the next victory in, of worship over the past victory. And the idea is this, that worship or gratitude is the last step in yesterday's victory, but it's the first step in tomorrow's victory. Gratitude is how we go from victory to victory. It's the bridge between the two. It's what takes an event and translates it into a lifestyle. It's what takes a breakthrough and it creates a a, a breakthrough that is continuous in our life so we can go from glory to glory and not just have momentary victory. Does that make sense? And so uh, it was just a vivid picture to me, and I happened to understand that that is very theologically accurate. I just never had thought of it in that regard about how literally we eat the, the fruit of yesterday's victory and the seeds that we spit out back in praise become the, the seeds of tomorrow's breakthrough. And so the last week at the end of the message, I, I ran out of time, and so I just ran through this very quick, and I looked at the the theological concept of grace and how Paul borrowed this word grace or in the Greek word is, in the Greek is charis. It's where we get the word charismatic, the grace gifts uh, or, you know, people who believe in the grace gifts, charis. And the, the root word of that is char. Uh, it's C-H-A-R transliterated into English, but it's, trans, it's pronounced char and it literally means joy. And so joy uh, produces grace, that grace 
uh, is, and Paul built on that word, and that word had an evolution over time. And Paul borrowed the four facets of the evolution of that word. At, at, in the beginning, that word simply meant benevolent or f- benevolent feelings or feelings of compassion. And that's how most believers look at grace. They limit it to that. They simply look at grace as God looking at us and saying, ah, I'm not going to hold my, your sins against you. I have, I have compassion towards you. I have grace towards you. And a lot of believers, that's the extent of their definition. And although that is accurate, it's insufficient. It is simply one facet of the word. Over time, that word began to mean drawing power. And we still use it that way. We, we talk about something being graceful. And it, it, the idea is that there's something about their demeanor, something about their movement, or how they carry themselves, or their gifts, or whatever, that attract us and pull us in. There's, there's a gracefulness about it. And it still retains that meaning in the English language. And we use it as the term graceful. And so the grace of God draws us, there's a drawing power in the grace of God. Now I touched on this last week and I'm not going to go deep into it this week, I just want to lay the groundwork, but when you look at the four elements of the definition of grace, four different meanings to the word grace in scripture, two of them are true of God. There's one that is in God and one that comes from God. And the other two are true of us as believers. One is found in us and the other is released from us. And only when we bring all four meanings together do we get the fullness of that idea of what grace really is. And we step into the fullness of grace. And so the first meaning was really the benevolent feelings. And I I said last week it's as if uh, there, there's a wealthy man that, that lives in a big mansion. He's sitting by his fireplace one night eating a hot meal. And he looks out through the frosted windows and looks down the long lane and outside the gate of his home in the cold is a shivering uh, homeless man with a, a sign that says, we'll work for food. And the feelings that this rich, benevolent man has that rises up in his heart and feels compassion for that man, that is Grace. But it's more than that. There's something that, there's, there's the grace that attracts him and gets, picks him up and moves him over there and, and goes to feed this man. The, 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 when it comes to grace being in us and not just in the heart of God, in the heart of God it's his feelings towards us, it's re- him releasing his grace to us to draw us to himself. God doesn't just have those feelings in and of himself. He begins to release grace that will draw you before you're saved. We see this with the Apostle Paul. When Paul was on his his way to kill the Christians, he had an encounter with God that threw him on the ground. And the first words out of his mouth were, who are you, Lord? He had one thing settled in his heart. You're Lord. I just need you to fill in the gaps and tell me who you are because I'm committed to this thing. See, that was grace before saving grace. The fact is God released his grace to you so that you would be attracted to him. And the only reason we believe him is that he released grace to us in the first place. Theologians call it prevenient grace. It's grace before saving grace. It's the grace that draws us so that we can enter into saving grace. And both of those are an element of the divine nature. God has feelings of compassion towards us. He releases grace to us. The wooings of God, even when we're enemies of God, 
But when it reaches us, it becomes a concrete provision for our need. And that is, that is also scriptural. It's a scriptural definition of grace. We see this in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, God, he, he petitions the Lord. He says, God, I've got this thorn in my side, this enemy, this, this, uh, this angel of darkness that is buffeting me. He said, I'm asking for relief. And what does the Lord say? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And in that context, 2 Corinthians 12, grace and power are used synonymously. We also see this in the book of Titus where Paul says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. See, it's the grace of God that saves us, forgives us, wipes out my transgression, but it doesn't just leave me in this this. A vain cycle of sinning and asking forgiveness, sinning and asking forgiveness. The grace of God comes to live inside of me and gives me the strength to overcome sin. It teaches me. It's an instructor. The root word of that word teaching is where we get the word pedagogue. It's an old word for like a male nanny that would discipline a young, a young man or young woman and raise them up. And it's used of the law in Galatians, but it's used of grace in Titus. In Galatians, it says that the law is a schoolmaster. And really, the, that word, the, the, the root word in the Greek is pedagogue. It's the, the law is someone that leads us, but it says it schools us and brings us to Christ. So before we're saved, God gives us the law to give us instruction. But after we're saved, he puts grace inside of us to continue to grow us up and teach us to say no to ungodliness. It's the provision of God to live righteous. And so as believers, we don't have the excuse of saying, well, I'm saved by grace and I'm just living in an immature state. You don't have that option because the grace of God within you teaches you to say no to ungodliness. And Paul also tells us that we can resist the grace of God. And so we need to cooperate with grace and that grace enables us to live an overcoming life. Romans chapter 8 says it's by the Spirit. And the Spirit of God is also called the Spirit of grace. And it's by the Spirit that we say no, that we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So grace is that power of God in us to overcome sin. So in our analogy of the rich, benevolent figure in his mansion and the poor, homeless recipient at the end of the lane, the, the rich, benevolent master, he, he's, he has compassion. He release, he, there's a drawing power that he releases, but he comes and he, he doesn't just sit at the end of his lane and look and have compassion, but is unmoved. He literally gets up and brings some provision to feed the homeless man. And that provision itself is grace. The bread he eats is called grace. The strength he gives us to overcome sin in our life is grace. So the grace of God is the power of God to help us overcome sin in our life. But the final facet of grace, and we still use it this way today, is the gratitude felt by the recipient of the provision. The homeless man, as he's eating that, he would be welled up in gratitude, and he would express that to the the rich man, and he would give him thanks, and that thanks was a form of grace. 
We still use it sometimes around the table. We say, who's going to say grace? And what we mean is, who's going to bless the food and give thanks? And what we need to understand is gratitude is the final act or the final manifestation of the grace of God in your life. The last blessing must culminate in gratitude released back to God or it stops there. But if we learn to return gratitude to God for the provision that he gave us, then we release the grace of God and there's a flow of grace. And that what we received in the past in our gratitude becomes the seeds for the next breakthrough. But a lot of times what happens is we sabotage our breakthrough because we got our eyes on what we don't have rather than what we do have. And what God does is he gives us a little that we're to steward and multiply into a lot. But it starts with the little, and as we're grateful for the little, it begins to multiply. You see this in Matthew 25. You remember the parable of the the talents where the master calls his servants together. And he, he gives one, one talent, one, three talents, and one, five talents. And it says, then he went on a long journey, and the, the one with the five and the one with the three immediately put what they got to work, and the, the, the one with one talent buried his talent. And then it says, the master returned to settle accounts with his servants, and he called them unto himself. And he said, what'd you do with what I gave you? And the first two come in, master, you entrusted us, you gave, you believed that we were capable of stewarding what you gave us and we believed your opinion of us. We bought in. We believe you're pretty smart and if you think we're capable, we believed we were capable and we took what you gave us and we began to invest it and we've multiplied it. And the one with five made five more. The one with three made two more. And he said, put these men over many things. And then it come to the one and he said, I knew you were a hard taskmaster who reaps where you do not sow and harvests where you cast no seed. I know that you are a person who requires things of me you haven't given me the ability to produce. You want a harvest, you don't give me seed. You want righteousness, you give me no grace. And his perspective of the master created a barren mentality when he looked at his own life. And the master said, take what was given to him and give it to someone else. And then he says this, and this is not the only place in scripture where this little phrase is used. But it's a troubling phrase. And I remember for years being just very troubled by it. Jesus says this, he who has will be given more. But he who does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him and given to those who have. It's like the anti-Robin Hood. Take from the poor and give to the rich. Like, what does Jesus mean by that? And then if you take a second look at it, it looks as though this doesn't even make sense. He says, I'm going to take from those who don't have and take what they have. How can you take something from me if I have nothing to take? He says, those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Doesn't make sense. What Jesus is saying is that everybody has something. But your perception of what he's given you, your perspective will either create barrenness or prosperity. It will multiply what you have or it will eradicate what you have. And it's all a matter of how you see it. 
Because there are people who look, and even though God, he may have only given them one talent, they have, they have a little, they don't believe they have, and so they ignore what they have. And he says, it, it, what those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And it, it, it has to do with that barren mentality that loses sight of what God's given us. It's that unbelief that begins to look at our life and, and only see the lack rather than the blessings. And I want to tell you this morning, your perspective will determine your future. Amen. What you believe about what you have right now will determine what you have in the future. And I know it, 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 sometimes we can get so caught up in the hardship we're in. We've all been there. But we have got to fight the fight of faith and not give in to looking at our lack or looking at what's not going on right because if that becomes your obsession, if that becomes what you're focused on, it'll literally eat away at everything else in your life. And you can literally believe yourself into barrenness. Or you can look at the little you have. It's like the old half full, half empty scenario. And if you once had a full cup and now it's only half there's only half left. It's real easy to say, well, now it's half empty. No, it's still half full. What end of the cup are you looking at? The upper end where there's nothing or the lower end where there's still something? This is not just some little self-help message. This is about spiritual discipline and spiritual reality. It's about spiritual warfare. What are you focused on in your life? This thing is essential because what can happen is we can contend, receive a breakthrough, and swallow the seeds. We've received the first three steps, first three phases of grace, but if we don't cultivate the last phase, which is gratitude, and return it back to him, we plug the pipes. You ever had to clean out the pipes under your sink? There's a trap, and if, if, there, if one end is plugged, there's no flow in the other end. It has to be released before more can come. It's the same thing with grace in our life. As we receive from him, we return it to him. As we receive from him, we return it to him. And that's how things multiply in our life. But the enemy wants to draw you in and make you a cynic and a critic and only look at what you don't have. And there's not a person in this room that can't look at areas of their life that are, are, are very easily, they're true, and it would be very easy to focus on them, and you'd have every reason to be discouraged. And I would dare say there's not a person in this room that also doesn't have some areas of blessing that if they'll focus on them, they have every reason to be very, very grateful. It just depends on where we're focusing on. And so we've got to figure out this thing. Sometimes it's the fight of faith. Sometimes it's a, just we're walking in faith and it's good and there, it, we don't have to try to believe. But there's other times we're having to fight to hold on. Fight the good fight of faith. So I want to look at a principle this week. 1 Corinthians chapter, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's jump there. I'm just going to read you one little verse. It's a very familiar verse, probably to all of us. My iPad is very slow. I think my iPad over eight this week. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13. Anytime now, Apple. Well, I can't even get my iPad to go up. Here's, thank you, John. Nothing like a good old Bible right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Quimby would love that. If we only had that on film, he'd say, see, Dave, that's why you need to carry your Bible in the pulpit. Look at the last verse, 13, 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Years ago, I I, I don't know that I've preached it here in quite some time, but we usually preach it uh, when we go to do pastor's conferences in other countries. Talk about how these... This passage, this little verse here, gives us the secret to unlocking the human heart. In here we have the three tumblers of the human heart. Tumblers are those, those little latches inside of a lock. And, and you're, when you have a key, every little notch is dealing with the tumbler inside of that lock. And every notch is dealing with a different one. And so that, that unique combination of tumblers, when you turn it, it unlocks them all and the door will open. But if you unlock all of them but fail to unlock the one, if one of your little ridges on your key has been carved down, it's not going to open the door. And in this passage, Paul gives us the three tumblers, faith, hope, and love, the great motivators of the human heart. God is the greatest psychologist that's ever existed. He was the designer of the human soul. And so we've got to guard faith, hope, and love. And there's a significance about the order in which they fall. Faith, then hope, then love. And last week we were talking about, essentially we're talking about faith. Keeping our praise alive over what God has done in the past. If you look at the concept of faith, hope, and love, faith points towards the past. It really deals with what God has done in the past. Hope deals with future faith. It's it's what's going to happen in your future. When you have hope, it's not about something that's been done in the past. It's about something that's coming in the future. And then love, we're rooted in the present. And so this thing of faith is the the first step. We've got to guard our faith and we've got to remind ourselves of what God has done. That's why the children of Israel, when God gave them the Ark of the Covenant, he told them, build an ark. Build a box, it was a small box, and he said, in this box, you're going to overlay it in gold, and I want you to put artifacts of past deliverance. I want you to put Aaron's rod, which symbolized authority. I want you to put the tablets of stone, which symbolized revelation. I want you to put the little jar of manna, which symbolized past provision. And so these were tokens of what God had done for them in the past. And they were to take these tokens of what he'd done in the past and put them in front of them and they would carry the ark into the battle. There was another title used of the ark. It wasn't only called the ark of the covenant and covenant has to do with God's commitment to us but it was also known as the ark of the testimony. And so the idea is this that we draw from the things God has done in the past we put them, you build yourself an ark per se You take what God has done in the past and you keep it in front of you. Don't let it just go behind you. Keep those things as memorials before you and let it go before you into battle. Let your past breakthrough pave the way for your future one. 
Because if you don't have faith, you're not going to be able to walk in hope. And so we've got to keep the past testimonies alive. That's why in Psalm 78, it talks about the, the, uh, the children of Israel. And it speaks of one tribe specifically. And for the life of me, I can't remember which one it was. But it says that they were armed and ready on the day of battle, but they turned back. Ephraim, thank you, Vicky. The, the, the sons of Ephraim were armed and ready on the day of battle, but they turned back because they forgot the testimony of the Lord. They forgot what the Lord had done in the past, so they lost heart to step into their future. And so we've got to keep a hold of this thing. The fact is, every one of us need to build ourselves an ark. You need to continually remind yourself of what God did for you in the past. You see this principle with David. He's facing a nine-foot giant. He's a young shepherd boy. What does he do? He remembers the bearskin rug on his tent floor and the, the mounted lion head over his mantle. He said, I've killed a lion and I've killed a bear. He's saying, God gave me victory in the past, so therefore he's going to give me victory in the future. He drew from his faith to cultivate hope. And we've got to keep those things alive in our heart. We need to remind ourselves of past victories. And I believe the Lord wants to break some things off of some people this morning. This morning as we're standing in worship, I've had these, all these swirling ideas going through my mind. And uh, someone came up to me during worship and shared something they saw in the spirit. And it kind of snapped me and uh, turned this message. I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12. It was about two and a half years ago now, or maybe a little less than two years, really. Uh, it was on a Saturday, and the Lord, I, I woke up from a dead sleep that morning with this verse going through my head, and I didn't even know where it was. I had to look it up. I had to get the concordance out and find out where this passage was. I was I'd heard it before, but it was kind of an obscure passage to me. Chapter 9, verse 12, and this was the verse the Lord spoke to me. Return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. And it was, it was out of, it just came out of nowhere to my heart. It wasn't like I was thinking about this verse. And so I went and looked it up and God began to speak to me about this principle. You see, there are times where we're called, you know, we, we guard our faith. Paul talked about guard the faith once delivered to you. you you've, got to, you've got to nurture your faith. You grow in faith. God gives faith as a gift, but we grow it. He gives us a little. We grow it into a lot. We need to guard it. We don't give up on our faith. The same is true of hope. Hope, it says to uh, hold on to your hope. It, it talks about guarding your hope. It, scripture talks about cultivating hope. David encouraged himself in the Lord. He was cultivating his hope in a dark moment of his life. But in this passage, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about us cultivating hope. It's talking about hope chasing you down and putting shackles called promises on your ankles. It takes you prisoner. See, nobody's taken prisoner by their own will. You can surrender, but you're not taken, you're not taken a prisoner by your own will. It's in battle. 
And in this passage, hope chases us down and makes us a prisoner of the promise. We become a prisoner of hope. It says, return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. See, Scripture talks of strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it talks about that we have strongholds that the enemy builds in our minds and from those strongholds he begins to attack us. So he says that we have the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying that there are belief systems, rogue belief systems that are contrary to the word of God. And they, they come in and if we accept a lie, that foothold becomes a stronghold. And Paul borrows this analogy of a stronghold or a fortress. David had a stronghold in the Old Testament. He would go up in the cliffs and he would hide from Saul. And the reason it was a stronghold is it was easy, a very easily defendable position because they would just have to guard the opening on a cliff. And so the enemy would have to crawl up the cliff and he, they couldn't attack from any other side but the opening on that, that stronghold. And so a stronghold is a, a, an easily defendable position. And Paul says that the enemy wants to erect strongholds in our life. He said we demolish these strongholds, we demolish arguments. And so in this case, Paul is saying that the enemy builds citadels built of thoughts. One lie upon another, one belief upon another, and he hides behind the lies and he begins to attack us. He, he sets up a lie in our promised land and then begins to use that position to begin attack and try to take more land in our life. And so we've got to understand strongholds and we've got to demolish those strongholds. But those are strongholds made of lies. In this passage, that is not what is being talked about. It's talking about strongholds built of hope and promises and the truth. And the prophet is saying, listen, return to your stronghold, your fortress, you prisoners of hope. It's those who have abandoned their beliefs They've gotten so discouraged, they've wandered out of the protection of those beliefs. And the Lord is saying, listen, I'm going to chase you down. I'm going to put shackles of hope upon you. And I'm going to tell you, get back to your faith. Get back to the belief system that will protect you. One of the greatest strategies of the enemy is discouragement. If he can take you with those one little thought, one little belief system at a time, the breadcrumbs, he will lead you into a trap that will cause you to lose hope. I mentioned it last week. In the book of Hebrews, it says this. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What the writer is saying is that when we're discouraged, we are very vulnerable to the enemy. When we're discouraged, it's easy to harden our heart because we don't see a bright and shining future. The enemy has veiled the goodness of God for our future and, 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 and caused us to only see the bad. And so there's, a, there's an encroachment of the enemy and we've got to fight for faith. And we've got to have eyes to see our brothers and sisters that are in those situations. Because they're very vulnerable to being picked off in those times. 
because discouragement makes it easy to harden our heart. Encourage one another daily while it is called today so that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's easy to believe the lies of sin when you're discouraged. And so we need to be encouragers, exhorters, but we also need to learn that skill set that King David learned in the wilderness when he encouraged himself in the Lord. How do we do that? We return to the testimonies in the past and the prophecies of our future. We return to what God has already done for us in the past and what he said he's going to do to us, do for us in the future. And testimonies and prophecy become anchors for faith and hope. And so we've got to guard our heart. We've got to become very skilled at reminding ourselves of both. We need to keep a list. We need to be keep, keep a, a testimony list and a prophetic list and re- return to those often. Because if the enemy can get you to forget about those, he can discourage you and pull you into his narrative that we talked about last week. Remember a few years ago, Chris Valatin, I had heard that he was just struggling. He'd gone into a deep depression. So many of you know who Chris Valatin is. He's an internationally known prophet and got a tremendous ministry. And uh, he just he had, he had gotten completely worn out. His schedule was crazy. There was a lot of things going on in his family. Just it all culminated into him being very discouraged. And he ended up bedridden for some nine months, laid on his couch for nine months. And he said while he was laying there, he was trying to remember some testimonies because he understood this principle. So he was trying to remember, okay, i got to remember what God has done in the past. He said he laid there for four hours before he could come up with one miracle that he had seen. Now, if you know anything about Chris's ministry, he's the second in command out at Bethel. They see miracles weekly, tremendous miracles. But yet he was... He had to think for three to four hours just to remember one valid miracle. And when he remembered that one, then he remembered another and another and another. The fact is the enemy can encroach in our mind and begin to sabotage and try to veil the goodness of God in the past and the goodness of God in the future. And we have got to steward both in our life. Faith, hope, and love. Guard your faith. How do you do that? You keep the testimony. Psalm 78 is very clear. It says that God wanted to establish a testimony in Jacob. In the nation of Israel, Jacob was a man who became a family, who became a nation. And they had a series of testimonies. And it said that you're to keep the testimony, Jacob, and you're to pass it to the next generation so they can can tell it to the next generation. And the context of that is where he talks about the sons of Ephraim who turned back on the day of battle because they forgot the testimonies. We've got to keep alive what God has done in the past. We need to make it part of the the stories of our family because God is establishing a testimony in your life. And you take the artifacts of those testimonies and you build yourself an ark and you put a box and you send that box before you. Every time you're facing a new trial, you remind yourself of the lion and the bear. You remind yourself of the provision of God in the past. And it stirs up your heart and it begins to create faith and hope. We've got to learn to keep that grace flowing in our life. 
And the way to do that is to remain grateful, to let grace not only come to us, but to be released from us back to the throne. But sometimes it takes a fight because the enemy wants to lock you on what's not lock you in on what's not happening in your life. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God is good and he has blessed you and he's going to bless you. Don't let the enemy rob you of what he's done in your life. Don't focus on the lack, focus on the provision. Nobody can rob you of what God has for you except you. Let me say it again. Nobody can rob you of what God has for you except you. So keep hope alive. Keep your eyes on the goodness of God. Feed on his promises. What has he done for you in the past? Begin to rehearse those. What has he said about your future? Begin to rehearse those things. And strengthen yourself in faith and hope. Return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. God has given you promises about your future. You are on a collision course with future good. You can't help yourself. The only way to avoid it is to run the other way. The only way to avoid the future good is to convince yourself of your own barrenness. God is good. And learn to develop a lifestyle of gratitude so that grace is always flowing in your life. There's grace in in the form of blessing and grace out in the form of worship. Grace in in the form of blessing, grace out in the form of worship. I'm going to clean your pipes, okay? Gratitude. Worship, a good worship service is like a good rotor-rooter. You know, it'll clean out the pipes. Let it start flowing. But don't let it be an isolated thing that happens from, in this, well, this morning, from about 10 to 11, 11.05. Let that be the primer for the rest of the week. Live in gratitude. Begin to always see the goodness running. I'm going to tell you, what you pay attention to will multiply. What you, what you focus on will begin to grow. If you focus on your problems, I'm telling you, they'll grow. You're going to be putting fertilizer on them. And if you'll focus on the goodness of God in your life, I don't care what's going on around you, you can overcome it with the goodness of God. But return it to Him in grace. Return it to Him in worship. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.